It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who will be sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know who those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. He shared the bread who has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had sent this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples stared at each other at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping a piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was ever needed for the festival or something to give to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You look for me just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Thanks, Jamie, and good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to Chris's and Mike's. My name's Carl. I'm the pastor, or one of the pastors, I should say, here at Trinity Church Only. It's terrific 
to be with you this morning. I've got a photo on the screen that I'll get Hamish to put up for us. It's of a picture that I think you'll probably recognise if it can come up. It'll be a bit hard to see with the lights on, but this is Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. It was painted in about the 1490s and apparently it's on a a convent wall in Milan. Some of you might have seen it before, I haven't seen it with my own eyes. But apparently it's huge, nearly nine metres wide and seven metres tall. Now, um, because of our COVID regulations, I've measured this room quite a few times in the last year or so and I know that this room is 9.6 metres across here. So uh, the Leonardo da Vinci's painting is 8.8 metres wide, so it would only just fit on the whole of the front wall here. It's huge, isn't it? An enormous picture. Perhaps its size is one of the reasons why it's one of the most recognisable pictures in the Western world. John, our gospel writer, who is who we just read from, he doesn't record the Last Supper in terms of the way that we normally know it, with the bread and the juice. And so we might miss the fact when we read through John chapter 13, that this is the last supper, the last meal that he will enjoy with his disciples. And just to kind of set the scene for you, I've kind of made it a little bit more familiar for you, and I've got this, you know, my depiction of Leonardo da Vinci's last supper. Here we've got the bread, a bowl for him. I wonder if you noticed that when Jamie read it first, a bowl, and I've got some juice, supposed to be red. Actually looks kind of like blood, doesn't it? It's beetroot juice, believe it or not. Let me pour it in there for you. And I do this really just to make the point that this is what we're reading here in chapter 13 right through to chapter 17. We're going to be looking at this over the next six weeks. This all happens, this dialogue all happens at the Last Supper. The last evening meal that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. And I want you to see as we work our way over the next few weeks through chapter 13 to 17 that Jesus really knows this is his last meal. He knows what's about to happen. He knows that the very next day after he said these things, he will be dead. Hamish has got a a timeline that he's going to put up on the screen for you here. It's kind of what happens in the Passion Week. You won't be able to get the full kind of picture of it, but as it scrolls across, you'll see we're on Thursday night at the Last Supper and Jesus is going to die just the very next morning. And in a way, that makes chapter 13 or the start of chapter 13 like a transition point or a seam in the story of the gospel. If you've got your Bibles with you, I'd love you to open to John chapter 13. I want to show you this this seam or this transition point in the story of Jesus and I'll read to you from verse 1 of chapter 13. I think it's going to come up on the screen as well if you, can, if you don't have a Bible or an electronic Bible in front of you. I'll just read to you from verse 1. This is what it says. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's the Passover festival, that time where Israel remembered the angel of death passing over the homes and passing over because the blood of the lamb had been sprinkled on the doors. Jesus is with his disciples and did you see, he loves them. 
He's with his own. He loves them. And here's the transition point. He's going to love them to the end. See, he's looking back. He's loved them throughout the time he's been with them. And now he's going to keep on loving them right to the very end. He loved them at the wedding feast way back in chapter 2. Do you remember that? When his hour had not yet come, if you remember us reading that a few months ago. Back then, his mother asked him to kind of turn or do something about the fact that the, the wine had run out. Back then he says, my hour has not come. It's not time for him to die. But now it is. And as we see over the next few weeks, the thing that kind of ties these chapters together, Jesus knows what he's doing, but his love for the disciples is on view in every spot as we work our way through these chapters. If you knew that your hour had come, if you knew that your time was up, I wonder what you would do. Maybe you'd eat chocolate or drink that expensive wine that you'd been saving for a rainy day. Maybe you'd do those things. For me, at least I'd want to get my family and my friends together and try and remind them of the things that I think are important. I'd want to encourage my family and my friends to live well, to stay faithful and to be great messengers of Jesus. I wonder what you'd want to do if you knew that your hour had come. I want you to see that Jesus knows that his time is up and that these five chapters, John 13 through to 17, are all about him explaining to his disciples, leaving instructions, instructions for them on how to live as his people, as his messengers in this world. These are the last few words that he's got for his disciples. And he loves them. And so he wants to give them some advice. And that makes these chapters, I think, such great, rich chapters for us. Because these are the things that Jesus thinks are important as he gets ready to leave, to die. John, you might remember, he's our, our author of this letter. His great desire in writing this letter is that we would know as readers that Jesus is the Messiah. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah because that's how we find life in his name. I've called this series Living as the Messiah's People because as Jesus gets ready to die, the very next day in fact, he's preparing his disciples to live as his people. He's giving them instructions. This is how you live as my people, as the Messiah's people. And his first instruction, the one that we read today, I reckon it's just absolutely crystal clear. You know, sometimes when we, when we read the Bible, we have to work really hard to understand the thrust of what the passage is saying. But not, not today, I don't think. This passage, I think, is outstandingly simple and crystal clear, isn't it? Here's the thrust of what I think is going on. The Messiah's people are those people who are willing to serve one another. Jesus' people are people who are willing to stoop down low and love one another in a way that's just as countercultural today as it was back when this happened for the first time. The Messiah's people are those who serve each other. I love the way that John Piper puts it when he speaks about this passage. He says, if you've been called to something high, go low. If you've been called into the family of God, it doesn't get much higher than that, does it? If you've been called by Jesus as one of his own, if he's lifted you up to the lofty heights of heaven, go low. 
be willing to stoop down. That's the sort of people that Jesus wants his followers to be. That's what he wants his messengers to be. We see this in verse 20. Jamie read it to us. If you've got your Bibles there, flick over to verse 20. John says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus is speaking here, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. He's talking about his messengers, isn't he? Jesus is about to leave this world and he's sending out his messengers with the good news. And what sort of people are his messengers to be? What are his disciples to be like, his followers? How are we to behave? Well, we'd be willing to serve each other. We'd be willing to be those who get down into the muck of life and humble ourselves. That's not easy to do, is it? It could be costly, it could be hard work, certainly countercultural. We might look foolish, we might look weak. But that's the big idea of this passage. Jesus both speaks it, he tells his disciples to do it, and he also acts it out, doesn't he? He demonstrates that he's willing to be someone who would serve. He demonstrates this humility. And we see that from verse 2. I'm going to read on. It'll be on the screen if you haven't got your Bibles with you. It says this, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying, with it, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, it's my understanding that back then there were a few things just slightly different to how we live today. I think most people wore sandals and the roads they walked on weren't paved like they are today. They were dusty and they were covered with muck and that meant that your feet routinely got very dirty. And no one wants to clean the sort of muck that you picked up off the road from between your toes. It it wasn't the sort of job that you liked doing. It was the job of a servant or a slave to do. Taking off your outer clothing, Jesus is also demonstrating humility. I mean, I think we get that to some extent. To be dressed only in your undies and to be standing in public, well, that's a a humiliating idea, isn't it? Certainly for most of us it is. But back then, Jesus is also adopting the kind of uniform or the dress of a menial slave. He's wearing a servant's uniform, essentially, by taking off his outer clothing. And as a servant, he washes the disciples' feet. And I think as readers, we're supposed to say at this point, wow, wow, because he has gone low, hasn't he? This is an incredible thing for him to do, to wash the disciples' feet. A few years ago, when I was working back at Kern Light Gardens, the church had its office at the RSL in Kern Light Gardens. And because this was an RSL, the Prime Minister came past one day to make some sort of announcement about something to do with um, return service people. Before he came, the news crews arrived. They knew he was on his way. Before he came, the PM's security service kind of turned up, not quite in their black cars like they do in the American movies, but certainly we noticed there were people around checking out the building, making sure it was safe. When everybody was there already and waiting for him, The Prime Minister turned up, made his speech, shook a couple of hands, and then rolled out. 
I kind of guess that's how the Prime Minister rolls, how he normally makes his announcements. But just imagine for a moment if having said his speech, he took off his jacket, grabbed a bucket and some cleaning cloths and went and started scrubbing the men's toilets. Like it would be unheard of, wouldn't it? It would be in the newspapers everywhere. It would be extraordinary. And yet essentially that's what Jesus is doing in John chapter 13. He even washes Judas's feet. Even though he knows Judas is about to betray him. We wouldn't expect our Prime Minister to come into an RSL and scrub the toilets. We shouldn't expect, in one sense, Jesus to wash the disciples' feet. Because he is powerful, isn't he? I wonder if you saw that in verse 3. It says, the Father had put all things under his power. He had come from God. So he's the one who has power beyond any other person, far more than an Australian Prime Minister. In our lifetime, we've seen some pretty powerful people. Putin, Obama, Xi Jinping. These people are powerful in our world today. But here's the thing, none of them compare to Jesus because the Father has placed all things, all things under his power. And yet here he is washing the disciples' feet. And the implication, it's crystal clear, isn't it? We can't kind of wriggle around it. If Jesus can do it, if the Messiah, who has the power over all things, the great King, if he can do it, then then so could you or I. We too should be able to serve one another. And just in case we miss the kind of implication of having read this passage, Jesus goes on to explain it, doesn't he, in words. He's demonstrated it in an action, then he explains it in words. In verse 13, it says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. It's, it's simple, isn't it? It's clear. He's saying, if I'm above you, and, and clearly he is, all things are under his power, he's their teacher and their Lord. If he's above them and yet he could go low enough to wash their feet, so they too should be willing to look after each other, to wash each other's feet. And it extends, doesn't it, to us today, as his messengers today, as his disciples today, we too, shouldn't we, be willing to serve each other. Now, I don't actually think Jesus wants us to literally wash each other's feet, but I do think he wants us to serve one another and to do it cheerfully and joyfully and willingly. He's about to go to his death and he's sending his disciples out to be his messengers and he says to them, be the type of people who will gladly serve each other. Step down and serve. You know, earlier this week I gathered with the other pastors from the Trinity Network And it was a chance then for our boss, Paul Harrington, who some of you know, to share a few of his thoughts for the 10 or so pastors who look after the churches around the Trinity Network. And Paul read from 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me read to you what he read. Very similar passage to what we've just read. Verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. It's like Peter and John knew each other, isn't it? 
as they wrote these words. And here's the thing, I need to be reminded of this. Pastors across the church in Adelaide need to be reminded of this, that our job is to serve. It's important for pastors, it's important for me. But my guess is it's also important for each of us to hear this message today. Because I reckon pride, it just just so often is only like just there in our minds. Jesus came to serve and he said to his disciples, I have set an example for you. Do as I have done for you. I wonder this morning, do you think you're a servant? Even if you're at the top of your tree in the thing that you do in the week, are you willing to serve each other? Are you lifting up and helping and blessing and building up people? Of course, I don't mean here, are you pandering to every whim? That's not what Jesus is saying. But I think he is saying, are you willing to get down from your lofty position and serve those and love those who are around you? I need to hear this. I wonder if you do. So I want the good news of Jesus to ring out across Adelaide. I want to be a messenger of the good news. And here's part of the job description. Here's one of the attributes. You've got to be willing to go low, to serve and to do so joyfully. I wonder if there's areas in your life where this is kind of a direct challenge to you. Perhaps in your workplace you have a really lofty position. Maybe you're a boss. Are you willing to serve those you work with? I worked for a guy once who went out of his way at every opportunity to serve the team he led. Anytime a good thing happened to the department that I worked in, he would hold up the team. He would pass the praise down to his team. Oh, it wasn't me, it was my team. They're a great team. They're the ones who did it. He'd deflect the praise down from himself to the team. He'd talk up the team at every opportunity he had. We were the ones who were worthy of praise, not him as the boss. And then if anything ever went wrong, which unfortunately happened from time to time, it was always his fault, not his team's. He was the one responsible. The team were just doing what he had asked them to do. He served us as his team in a way that I will never forget. I think business would benefit from more leaders like that, wouldn't it? I think our schools and our universities would benefit from more leaders like that. But when it comes to the church, this is what we must do. It's not an optional extra. This is what we must do. We must serve one another. We've been blessed. We've been given much. We've already been seated in the heavenly realms as those who know Jesus. And so we've got to be willing to serve each other. If Jesus did it, if the King did it, so must we. It wouldn't be great if life was like that all around us. If that was our attitude, servant-hearted, willing to make sacrifices, willing to love one another. I just want to keep pressing on this with you a little bit more. I wonder how this would work out in your life. If you're a parent, obviously you need to exhibit discipline and structure, but are you willing to make the sacrifices and to serve your children, even if they're teenagers? Now don't mishear me here, of course. I'm not saying that we need to give in to every desire and whim of our kids, absolutely not. But are we willing to put their best interests above our own, even when it's costly? 
And if you're a teenager here today, are you willing, even when your parent forgets this every now and again, for the sake of serving your parents to simply do what they ask of you? To serve rather than demand justice. Yesterday you said we'd do this. Are you willing to serve? Well, what about if you have a spouse? Are you willing to serve them? What about your Bible study group? Are you willing to serve the members in your group to give up the time and the freedom that you have to serve them and to encourage them and to build them up? You know, I'm so thankful for the many ways that I already see this happening in our church, for the way in which this is just part of what you do. I'm so thankful for those who aren't in this room right now who are out serving our kids, helping them to learn. I'm thankful for those who got here early to help us set up. I'm thankful for those who are out making pancakes, serving us for that. For those who are willing to do things like complete child safe training programs in the evening or set up. This is not supposed to be a wrap over your knuckles. Many of you remind me weekly what it looks like to have a servant heart. I'm so thankful for that. But I want you to see today, this is a mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, isn't it? He wants us to serve each other. He wants us to love each other and care for each other. Thank you for doing it, those of you who do. Thank you for pointing us to Jesus. Now, for those of you who are following along in your Bibles this morning, we've missed a section. We've missed a few verses. We've not looked at verses 6 to 11 together. So far, I think we've seen what's the very plain message in this this part of the chapter. Jesus' disciples must be willing to serve each other. But in verses 6 to 11, we see Jesus adding another layer of meaning to this passage. He's showing us that um, by will it be willing to humble himself, he's kind of giving us this almost like preview, sneak preview of what's going to happen to him the next day, his death on the cross. It's a bit like a movie trailer, the washing of his feet. See, in verse 6, Jesus gets to Peter. Now, I take it Jesus has been making his way round the group with a bucket or a bowl and a towel, washing their feet, and now he gets to Peter. Remember, Peter's the impulsive one, the, the one who will say something. Well, let me read to you what Peter says in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Remember, Peter's the impulsive one. I get where he's coming from at this point. Jesus is the Messiah. Just a few paragraphs before, you might remember, at a banquet that had been held in Jesus' honour because he'd raised Lazarus from the dead, Mary had poured a pint of perfume over Jesus' feet and then she'd got down and she'd washed his feet with her hair. That was right, that was proper, wasn't it? Because he's the Messiah and the King. And so Peter thinks, we should be serving him, not the other way round. It's all upside down and back to front. That's the point, isn't it? And look what Jesus says. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Strange thing to say if it's just a demonstration, isn't it? You get this also from John Piper. If Jesus was just the boss, he's trying to get his team to serve one another. If he's just making a demonstration of what they should be like and do likewise, wouldn't it be better to say to Peter something like this? Stop ruining my illustration, Peter, and sit down and let me wash your feet. But instead he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
Now that's kind of false humility at one level, isn't it? Peter, sit down or I'll sack you. That's not real humility, isn't it? Here's what Don Carson says. I've got the quote on the screen for you. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That's what Jesus says. Unless the Lamb of God, remember this is the Passover meal, unless the Lamb of God has taken away a person's sin, has washed that person, he or she can have no part in him. Can you see what Jesus is doing here then? He's giving his disciples a sneak preview of what's about to happen the very next day. He's about to stoop down and serve them in the ultimate way. He's about to die as the Passover lamb in order to wash them clean spiritually. That's a once and for all act. Those who have been cleansed by Christ's atoning work, you know, doubtless we'll need to have our sins washed away again at some point, but the fundamental cleansing has already happened. It's a once and for all act. Can you see, Jesus just knows, doesn't he? He knows what's about to happen. He knows where he's going. He knows who will betray him. He knows how it's all going to go down. He is fully in control at this point. He's fully aware and because he loves his disciples, he's about to serve them in the ultimate way. And in comparison, his death the next day, it's nothing in comparison to washing their feet. He's about to be hung on a cross and killed for their sake, just like the Passover lamb. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be abused. And then he's going to be killed. And it's for their sake, for my sake, for your sake, to wash away our sins. 700 years before this happened, Isaiah wrote, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Don't be confused. Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows he's about to go to the cross and he does it out of love for us. How do I know that? Well, come with me to the end of chapter 13 to verse 33. This is what Jesus says. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. He's about to go the very next day as it happens to his death. And so he will be with his disciples only a little longer. What would you tell your kids if that was your case? What would you tell your family and your friends if you knew that was going to happen to you the next day? Well, Jesus says, I've set you an example. Go low. Serve one another. Be willing to wash their feet. Why? Because this is how we love one another. Come with me to verse 34 of chapter 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That love and service are connected, aren't they? I might be able to serve someone out of obligation, but to do willingly, joyfully, well, that's normally only possible if you love them. Here's the new command that Jesus gives his disciples. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And love, we'll see over the next few weeks as we work our way through chapters 13 to 17, is like the golden thread that winds through these chapters. It's the reoccurring theme. God loves us. Jesus loves us. And so we should love one another. 
It's there right at the start of the chapter. We saw that right at the start. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Even if that meant being willing to serve them to the point of his own death. That's the sort of Lord and God we have. I'm going to pray for us that we'd be like that as a church too. Father God, we thank you for the the simple and plain message of John chapter 13, that we are to love one another. We thank you for the example of Jesus who shows us his love for us and sets an example for us. Father, we thank you that the cross washes us clean. We say sorry for the times that we haven't behaved like this. And we ask that through your spirit, which we'll see we've been given in the next few chapters of this gospel, Please fill us with that spirit that we would love one another, serve one another, and that we'd do it for your glory. Amen.